Chapter Two of Our Little Hindu Cousin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Our Little Hindu Cousin by Blanche McManus. Chapter Two A Day in the Bazaar. So it was settled that Kola should go too. A little later, the Ekaguri was ready in the courtyard, and they all stowed themselves away in it somehow. The Ekaguri was a funny kind of carriage made of bamboo poles hung between two high wheels, with a red canopy to keep off the sun. It was drawn by a little pony, and the shafts were fastened to a stout bamboo stick across his high-pointed collar. They found themselves rather a tight fit, for the Echo was small, and the coolie, or servant, who was driving, had to balance himself as best he could on one of the shafts. Nobody minded this, however, and away went the little pony along the dusty road, past gardens and many low, rambling, two-storied houses, very much like their own. Everything looked wonderfully bright and gay. Many of the houses were painted a brilliant pink or yellow, with bright green verandas, and the people, too, were dressed so gaily, in all kinds of colours, though some of them wore pure white, which looked nice and cool in the blazing sun. Soon they passed the great gate of the city, and came into the busy streets of the bazaar. In all eastern cities there is a part called the bazaar, where are all the shops, and in a large city like Lucknow, the bazaar is made up of many streets, of nothing but shops. All the fruit and vegetable shops are in a street to themselves, all the workers in brass and other metals in another. You will find the silk merchants in one street, and in still another all the shops that sell cotton goods, the pretty flowered kinds stamped with tinsel as well as plain white, for every one in India wears light cotton or silk clothes. When they came to the street where the silk merchants were, the grandmother and Shriya and her mother got out, for it was here they were going to buy Shriya's pretty silk dresses and long veils, and other pretty things. I would rather go with thee, father, said Kola, so he and his father turned into another street. Here were the shops where wonderful gold and silver work was made and sold, and where precious stones were set into all kinds of rich and curious jewellery. The shop of Kola's father was one of the largest in the street, though we would think it very small. It was more like a cupboard in the side of the street than anything else and he could reach nearly everything in it without getting up from his seat. The shop had no name or sign over it, nor were there any windows, while no doors were needed because the entire front was open to the street, so that customers could look in and see if there was anything they wished to buy without coming inside. Kola sat on his heels watching his father, as he sat cross-legged on a carpet spread on the floor, putting a beautiful blue turquoise into the setting of a silver necklace. Near to his elbow was a low table, on which were piles of precious stones. He liked to come with his father to the bazaar and watch him make the gold and silver into beautiful things. When Kola was older, he would come every day to the bazaar, and his father would teach him to be a silversmith like himself. Every little Hindu boy follows the same trade as his father. The Hindus love jewellery of all kinds, and both men and women wear quantities of it. In fact, much of their wealth is often put into the form of necklaces, rings, and bracelets, which the women wear all the time. 
The Hindus think this is the safest way to keep their wealth. So you can see why the jewellers do such a big trade in India. Father, there's a customer, whispered Kola. But Haraja paid not the slightest attention to a tall man in a long silk robe, with a big turban on his head, who stopped to look in the shop. A Hindu merchant usually thinks it beneath his dignity to ask anyone to buy his wares. Presently the tall man said, Are you happy? I am happy, answered Haraja. This is the Hindu way of saying, How do you do? Haraja then offered the tall man a seat on the rug, and his own hookah to smoke, which is the polite thing to do. The would-be customer puffed away at the great pipe for some minutes, meanwhile saying never a word. Soon he began to pay compliments, and then he looked at and priced nearly everything in the shop, before he asked the price of the gold-mounted dagger, on which he had had his eye all the time. Then came the bargaining. Kola knew that this would take all the morning, so he slipped away to a shop a little way down the street, where a big yellow and red awning hung across the roadway. Here were beautiful brass ornaments of all kinds, lamps, vases, pictures, and what not, and Cole appeared among these for a sight of his little friend now. Only now's father was in sight, and he sat dozing over a hookah. Farther down the street, however, Cola spied now's embroidered cap bobbing between two big camels, laden with great bales of cloth. Now, as quickly caught sight of his friend Cola, and came running up at once. Oh, Cola! he cried, as he greeted his little friend by touching his forehead and the palm of his right hand. Let us go to where the caravans gather about the city gate. The man with the camels has just told me that all the camels stop there to rest on entering the city. Nay, said Kola, they are wild, rough doings among the strange men who come down from the hills with the camels. I have heard my father say so. Oh, go play with thy sister then. I will go alone, said Now, who made out as if he would turn away. I am not afraid I too will go and talk with the camel men, Kola answered with spirit. No little Hindu boy likes to be told to stay home with the girls, because in his country it is a sad fact that little girls are not thought as much of as boys, nor do they have so good a time. The two boys slipped away through the crowded street, dodging between lumbering wagons drawn by oxen called buffaloes, and pushing their way through a crowd of folk dressed in a great variety of costumes, all in gay colours and with queer gaudy turbans on their heads. The turban forms a very important part of the dress of the Hindu, and Kola could tell by the colour and shape of each man's turban to just what caste each man belonged and what business he was in. There are many of these castes or classes of Hindu people, and each caste keeps strictly to itself. A person of one caste must not marry outside his caste, or touch persons of another caste even, or eat with them, or have any friendly dealings with them. Not only that, but you would think it very tiresome, would you not, to have to remember not to sit next to that person, or touch that one, and that you must find out who cooked your food before you might eat it. But this is what our little Hindu cousins have to think of all the time. Many of the men carried umbrellas of bright colours. Once only very high and mighty people in Hindustan carried umbrellas, or rather had them carried over them by a servant. But now nearly everyone carries one, and they are needed in a country where the sun shines hotly all the year round. For this same reason the streets are nearly covered in by great spreading awnings, drawn from one side to the other, and forming a sort of roof. 
Just for the fun the two boys got in the way of the bisti, or water carrier, so that the stream of water from the goatskin bag, with which he was watering the dusty street, might play on their bare feet, but when he turned it toward their heads they ran away, laughing. "'See, there must be a juggler over there,' said Kola, pointing to a circle of people around an old man with a grey beard. The two boys pushed into the circle until they were near enough to see what wonderful things the man was doing. He had just put a few seeds into the dust under a small mat. Behold, he cried, there will grow up a beautiful flower. And sure enough, as he lifted up the mat, there appeared a pot, and from the pot there began to grow a stem and green leaves, until finally it became a tall plant from which unfolded a great red flower. All at once, as the juggler held the plant up for everyone to see, the flower changed into a cage containing two white doves, and when the door of the cage was opened, the doves came out and began to circle above the juggler's head. At this there was a murmur of wonder and surprise from the crowd. The doves entered the cage again, but as the people looked, the cage and doves and the red flower and the plant with the green leaves all vanished. And the juggler stood on his little grass mat with absolutely empty hands. Nothing could have been hidden about him, for he had on no clothes except a cloth wrapped around his waist. "'Is it not wonderful?' whispered now. "'There be people who say it is magic, and that there are no such things in sight as the flower and the doves, and that it is all the power of the eye of the old man that makes other people see things as he wants them to see them.' "'Nay, it is real magic, and the flower did grow before us,' said Kola. "'It would be hard for any one to believe otherwise, for it is true that the jugglers of India's do the most wonderful tricks, far more wonderful than those we see in our own country, and no stranger can really tell how they are done. "'How will you find your camel-man?' asked Kola, when finally the boys came to the great square where the caravans camped. Everywhere were camels and horses and men in strange costumes. "'He said he would be near the gate,' said now, as he and Kola crept in and around the big camels, and under them, constantly being scolded by the men for getting in their way. Finally, now spied his friend, sitting lazily smoking in the shade of the gateway, while he watched his camels being unloaded. "'Welcome, O oh little friend,' said the big bluff fellow. "'I suppose it is no use to ask thee to share my dinner,' he continued, pointing to the big dish of boiled rice, cabbage, and goat's meat, which one of his stable-boys had just brought him. The food smelt very good, but Kola and Nao shook their heads. They knew by the blue turban and dress of their new friend that he was a Mohammedan, and they would rather have starved than eaten food with him. But they were quite willing to squat beside him in the dust in true Hindu boy fashion, and listen to his strange tales of the faraway countries which he had visited, as he ate his meal out of the big bowl. They heard how he had come from the great plains of China, across the snow-covered mountains of the north, the great Himalayas, the highest mountains in the world, and how his camels had waded through snowdrifts up to their necks. He told them marvellous tales of the great cities of Delhi and Lahore, with their marble palaces and beautiful gardens, and of the great rice-fields of Burma. Sometimes he had crossed the great desert going toward the west, and had seen the splendid city of Bombay, and from there had gone on down the coast where the tall palm-trees grow. He and his caravan had crossed India many times, carrying merchandise from one part of the country to another. The camel-man talked on, 
until he had finished eating and was ready for a nap. "'It must be fun to ride a camel,' said Now, as he and Cola made their way back to the bazaar. "'I think it is much nicer to ride a big elephant, as my uncle Ahmed does when he goes about his lumber-yards,' answered Cola. "'But now the smell of thy friend's dinner has made me hungry.' "'Let us buy some sweetmeats,' he continued, darting across the street to a little booth where there were bowls and baskets filled with all kinds of sweet, sticky things to eat that not only Hindu children like, but all the grown-ups as well. When a Hindu wants a real treat, he eats as many sweetmeats as he can. Just as the boys got to the booth, a big buffalo came snorting along. He evidently wanted sweets too, for he stuck his head under the awning of the little shop and took a big mouthful of preserved fruit from one of the baskets, at the same time upsetting the contents of another basket over the owner of the little shop, who was dozing among his wares. "'Oh, the thief!' cried the man, jumping up angrily, though he dared not do anything to the animal, for it was one of the sacred bulls from the nearby temple. They were allowed to wander through the streets, though they often robbed the shops in this mean fashion." "'Tis no laughing matter,' said the man, turning to the boys, who could not help laughing at his discomfiture. "'Do not be cross,' cried Cola, as he and Now helped to pick up the scattered sweets. "'We are a different kind of customer from the buffalo. How many cowries do you want for this almond paste? Not too many, mind you,' he continued, with an eye for a bargain, "'for we helped you save the others.' "'And eaten some too, I warrant,' grumbled the man, still in a bad humour as he wrapped up the sweets in a large green leaf and gave it to Cola, who paid him with some tiny shells, threaded on a string, which he took from the wallet he carried in his dress. These cowrie shells are used for small pieces of money, and are carried on strings. As you may imagine, each shell is not of great value. "'Let us eat our sweets here,' said Cola, squatting in the shadow of a wall, and, with his finger, drawing a circle round them in the dust. This was intended as a sort of boundary line to keep any low-caste person from coming too near them while they were eating. The boys greatly enjoyed their candies, which they thought all the better for being made with goo, a sort of rancid butter. Just as they were finishing the last bit, someone came up and touched now on the shoulder. "'Who comes here to make my food unclean?' he cried, jumping up angrily. "'Hush! It is a little saib. Doubtless he knows no better,' said Cola as he looked around and saw an English boy standing by. "'I think those things look better than they taste,' the boy said, smiling, as he pointed to the sweets. "'But I meant no harm. I only wanted to ask if you could tell me where Colonel Scott lives. I think I have lost my way.' "'Ah, everyone knows the Colonel Saib, but the house is far from here, in the street with the great trees near the Chattamanzil,' said Cola. "'Where the roofs look like big gold umbrellas, I know.' said the English boy. My name is Harry, and Colonel Scott is my father. My mother and I have just come from England, but my papa has been here a long time. While he was buying something in one of the shops, I followed a man who had a lot of performing birds, and the first thing I knew I had lost my way. Harry rattled away, glad to find someone to talk to. Cola could understand him fairly well, for he had been taught a little English at his school. Yonder stands a rickshaw, "'It will take you quickly to your home,' said Cola, "'proud to be able to talk to a little Saib. "'The little Hindu boys hailed the rickshaw, "'and nearly bursting with importance, "'bargained with the man who pulled it "'to take the little Saib home. "'Perhaps I shall see you again, "'for I am going to live here now,' said Harry, 
as he thanked the boys and climbed into the rickshaw, which looked like a big perambulator. Away the man went with it at a lively trot, with Harry waving his cap in the air as a good-bye to his new-found friends. Kola could talk of nothing but the little Saib as they jogged home in the Ekka in the dusk of the evening. There are many English people in India, because it is now part of the British Empire, so it is not surprising that Kola and Harry should meet in this way and be able to talk to each other. Mahala was very much disappointed because he had not been there too, when he heard Kola tell of his adventures as they ate their supper. End of chapter 2